Doctor Who, Bad Therapy, by Matthew Jones. So, excuse me if occasionally at times here I sound a little bit out of breath and walk into the shops to buy a pint of milk so overpriced uh, you'd have thought Liz Truss would have endorsed it herself. But I'm not here to tell you about my lactose intolerance. I'm here to talk to you about bad therapy. Now, there's a reason that Russell T. Davis invited its author, Matt Jones, to work on the second season of the revised series back in 2006. And that's simply because this is brilliant. It has roots that stretch across multimedia platforms, going all the way into school reunion, in much of the way that it deals with the reunion between, let's call this protagonist X and the Seventh Doctor. But bad therapy is so much more than that. It's so much more than a continuity fest and references to the past. And yes, there is even a cameo from our softly spoken Byronic San Francisco dwelling Eighth Doctor. But we'll get to that, man. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Bad Therapy is a book that deals with consequences. It was born in a bit of a fiasco in the wake of Ben Aranovich and Kate Orman's so vile a sin being delayed. Word processor issues happens to the best of us. Um... And it came out in December 1996. Now, you've got to bear in mind that by this point, the Eighth Doctor was a fully-fledged being. We knew there was not going to be a season. It was very unlikely after the crashing numbers on the May 1996 screening. Personally, I'm still upset that they put Bramwell opposite on an OTV starring future Kate Stewart, Gemma Redgrave, but we digress. Bad Therapy is a book that has its roots, as I say, in consequences. You know, you're looking at a Seventh Doctor coming to death, spoilers, and he's not only is he accepting his own mortality, he's also coming to terms with the death of Ros Forrester. Now, Ros Forrester's death happens in So Vile a Sin, a book that we hadn't actually read by this point. And there's a little neat kind of prescript to the beginning of the tome that kind of explains this. But in so much as this book deals with the characters readjusting, coming to terms with their own mortality... It's a marvellous piece of work. As character examinations and explanations go, it, it, it informs so much of those latter-day virgin novels. This is a range that can see the end approaching over the crest of a hill and is not overly concerned now with grandiose schemes, chess master of a thousand boards, you know, uh, furious kind of continuity references. It's, it's merely kind of tidying up after itself. There's lovely couple of left references to the Seventh Doctor approaching the sort of maudlin introspective figure we saw at the beginning of the 1996 TV movie but more than that this is a book and I'm not going to spoil the identity of the enemy for you because that's one of the few main surprises of the tome but suffice to say for a book so drenched in nostalgia and looking backwards it's quite curious how much it points towards the EDAs and by that I mean that it's very very much initially character driven. Chris doesn't know where his future lies with the Doctor. The Doctor is actually only communicating with Chris by post-it notes at the beginning of the tome. You know, it's very, very much a 21st century book in so much as the way that the people actually speak to each other and don't really have too much communication in the channels that they wish to get across. Matt Jones has written a superb book here. It's one of my favourites of the range. You can probably guess by the way I'm waxing rhapsodical about it so much. Um, I would urge you to buy it. It's not that pricey, you know, we're not talking Longborough territory here. We're talking, you know, fairly decent old wedge, but make sure that you paid your gas and electric bill and that Auntie Liz and Uncle Rishi haven't got to you by that point. Anyway, I'll hand you back over to the main man and he can um, pick apart the bones of what I just said now. Synopsis. London, 1958. 
Hairdresser Eddie Stone is on his way to meet his secret boyfriend Jack when he is stabbed by some violent thugs. He collapses against a police box, unexpectedly blocking a narrow alley. Nearby, the Doctor and Chris are dining in a Soho restaurant, although the mood is muted after the recent death of companion Ros Forrester. They meet an outrageous nightclub owner, Tilda Jupp, known locally as Mother, who invites Chris to visit her club after hours. The Doctor goes back to the TARDIS alone, but he discovers Eddie and begins to examine his wounds. The following day, Chief Inspector Harris arrives at the hospital where Eddie has just died. In the morgue, he meets a doctor, who he assumes is the pathologist and tells him Eddie is the sixth victim to die of such barbaric wounds in recent times. All the victims are seemingly people without pasts, working cash in hand with no known family or friends. The doctor has taken what few effects Eddie had, including a ticket on which is scrawled the name Jack and an address. The Time Lord soon finds Jack and saves him from a murderous black cab. When a visitor arrives, Jack asks the Doctor to hide under his bed with the Time Lord finds a bodybuilding magazine and swiftly deduces that Jack is gay. The visitor turns out to be an enforcer for a local gangster who is blackmailing Jack about his sexuality. The Doctor is disgusted by this, so he swiftly chases the blackmailer off. Then he undertakes the sad task of telling Jack that Eddie is dead. Quedge arrives at The Tropics, a two-room, semi-secret bar in the heart of Soho and succumbs to Tilda Jupp's insistent questioning. Then we meet crime boss Gordy Scratton. At 26, the inheritor of a big London gang who is communicating with the devil via a glass orb in his hidden study. His younger and simpler brother Carl arrives and announces he's killed Eddie Stone. Chris saves fading singer Patsy Monette from the speeding cab outside the bar and they return for more drinks. Mother gets a tip-off. The Scratton gang are out, shaking down the illegal nightclubs tonight. So Mother dispatches Chris and Patsy to warn a nearby friendly rival club. The Doctor and Jack follow the Enforcer to Gordy's club where they break in. The Doctor opens Gordy's safe and burns all the files from which the Scratton gang are running their blackmail operation. But they are caught by Carl, who wields his cutthroat razor at them menacingly. The Doctor and Jack escape after a fight. Chris and Patsy visit the Major's secret bar which is attacked and set on fire. Police cars arrive and the Major and Chris are arrested. Jack tells the Doctor all about Eddie and the Time Lord listens carefully and compassionately. Meanwhile, in space, the Queen of the Krontep takes a break from the royal life she has endured these last 20 years, ever since she was abandoned by her travelling companion and entered into a loveless marriage with the reigning king of the Krontep. The Queen hopes to translate the inscriptions in the abandoned palace of Petrushka, wife of Mariah, the very first queen of the warlike Krontep race of Thorden. By the way, the Queen's name is Gilliam. Harris finds the Doctor waiting for him at Charing Cross Police Station. They discuss the Scratton gang. In the background, various drunks and wrong'uns are released from the cells, including Quedge. Chris is met by Patsy and Mother, who reluctantly admit they are not of this world, which Chris has already deduced. He passes on a cryptic message from the Major. More arrivals are expected, and Mother will have to help them while the Major is incarcerated. Gordy Scratton surveys the burned remains of the illicit bar and looks forward to reclaiming his Soho from all the, and I quote, queers and the blacks who have overrun it. Chris meets Patsy at Liverpool Street where they catch a train to Healy in Essex, which I've never heard of. At Healy in the Petrushka Institute, psychologist Julia Mannheim watches a bizarre experiment featuring director Mariah and a life-size plastic doll which comes to life in his arms. 
attacks him, tries to escape, and then melts back into a lifeless plastic blob. That night, Chris and Patsy rescue an old woman and a young Chinese boy from the grounds of the Institute. The Doctor, Jack and Harris locate the murderous black cab which begins to absorb the Doctor. The next day, Gilliam is visited by her shouty husband, the King of the Krontep, who wheedles rather than blusters for her to return to him as soon as she is finished. Gilliam had forgotten that he loves her. In Soho, the Doctor and Jack are absorbed by the taxi which leaves Harris behind. Chris and Patsy are attacked by a blank-faced humanoid, but Patsy manages to clobber him with an iron bar. They and the unconscious escapees travel back to Healy Station and board a train for Liverpool Street. The cleaner at the station finds another dead body of a young lad with no past. On the third day, Gilliam awakes to see that her husband has sent a team of archaeologists to help her translations, in order, no doubt, to speed her return to his side and imperial life, although she's no longer sure she wants to return. She dismisses the academics and buries herself on further translations. At the end of the day, she solves a riddle in the text and locates a secret mechanism that leads her out of the chamber presumably just like Petruska before her. Dr. Julia Mannheim visits the morgue where she finds two bodies, but one of them springs to life and introduces himself as the Doctor. The other is Jack. Julia has no idea how they could have got there, and the Doctor doesn't remember either. She explains about the toys, genetically engineered psychotherapeutic tools created by Mariah to help the mentally ill. The creatures are deeply empathetic and essentially become the very people the patients need in their lives. The Doctor deduces the murder victims that have been turning up in Soho are escaped toys, hence they have no past, and form one overriding primary psychological attachment. As Julia is interrupted by Mariah, the Doctor and Jack Scarper, sneaking into Mariah's office. They find a large portrait of Petruska, who looks just like Mother, Tilda Jump, and behind it a secret passage leading down to a subterranean lair where Mariah is speaking into a globe at the other end of which is Gordy Scranton. Mariah is insistent that Gordy finish the job of hunting down all the escaped toys. Jack arrives back at his flat to rescue his roommate Mikey and the little boy Dennis, who is Mariah's target. Scranton sends his newest hire, gangland killer, Billy Spot, along with his unstable brother Carl, to kill Dennis, and they duly capture the trio. They bring them to Gordy in his base, but as Mariah's voice urges them to kill the boy, Billy Spot reveals himself to be a disguised doctor. He intimidates Gordy, who is unable to shoot the Time Lord, and Jack grabs the globe to use as a shield, but it simply whisks Mikey, Dennis and Jack away through space. Gilliam discovers the remains of Petruska, and comes to the conclusion that the first Queen of the Cromtep killed herself, rather than return to her husband. She instinctively decides that she, too, must flee and floats down into a pit. In the cells, after being caught by the police, the Doctor finds the dying Major and learns that, despite his best efforts, Chris has become embroiled in adventure too. Upstairs, Harris, realising his career is over anyway, decides to spring the Doctor. They go to see Mother and the Doctor pleads for her help confronting Mariah. Gilliam is flipped through a hyperspace vortex while her memories, including a lot of dialogue from seasons 21 to 23 of Doctor Who, echoes around her head. The Doctor and his entourage rescue Jack and Mikey from incarceration. Dr. Mannheim has been ordered to kill Dennis but finds herself unable to. Tilda confronts her and the psychologist goes on to lose a philosophical and ethical debate with the Doctor about their work, creating life to serve the emotional needs of superior life forms. 
Mannheim is turned, but then Mariah and his guards appear. Gilliam materialises back on Earth and strolls into the confrontation between Mariah and the Doctor's team. She casually mentions why Mariah is so desperate to succeed to reanimate his wife, Petruska, who killed herself rather than be with him. This revelation knocks the wind out of the warlord's sails to some degree. Then the Doctor says a cautious hello, and Perry lays him out with the biggest slap of her life. The Doctor sends everyone back to London, save for Jack and Perry, using Mariah's bird globe machine. Perry and the Doctor conduct some high emotional melodrama while fleeing the animated brides of Mariah, decaying failures stored beneath the Institute. Chris goes to see the Doctor, who is planning a party at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club to connect the surviving toys to new people to bond with. The Doctor starts to question what he's planning, and has a drink with Andrew the barman. Talked out of letting the toys carry on a life in indentured service, the Doctor points out to Tilda that she doesn't have a human partner, and if she can be autonomous, surely so can the rest of the toys. Jack is having another protracted mope about Eddie Stone when Carl Scratton arrives to kill him. Mariah arrives at the party and fails to kill his minions once again. Gordy Scratton rushes in and throws himself at the feet of his satanic majesty, who ignores him, which tips Gordy over the edge. Carl goes to kill the child, Dennis, but some passers-by stop him from doing so. This triggers the Notting Hill riots. We realise that even Carl himself is a toy, animated by Gordy's deep need of him. Tilda and Perry pour their memories and knowledge of Petruska into a toy and it forms a perfect version of Mariah's wife. So the Doctor drives it to Healy to, to give to Mariah, if the Warlord will agree to leave Earth. Chris and Patsy's story is needlessly protracted by Gordy shooting Chris. He's swiftly dealt with anyway, and Patsy recognises Chris doesn't want her, so she sacrifices herself to save him. Needless to say, the Doctor's plan goes wrong, but Mariah is captured and torn to pieces by his legion of abandoned, failed brides underneath the Institute. Perry comes full circle, setting off to travel around Europe without a passport, which is how she met the Doctor in the first place. Chris and the Doctor set off for further adventures. Let's face it, by this stage, nobody's dropping into this range and starting this range at book 57. Um, if you, if you, you know, nobody's discovering Doctor Who at this point, um, and you've had six <laughs> months since, since the telly movie, so you know, no one's coming into this range at the moment. They have no intention and no desire or no ability to bring people into the range. So if you're reading, you're here. But also, if you're stuck with the range at book 57, you're sticking through to book 61. Nobody's going to sit there and go, well, this was the final straw. I'm not going to make it to the end because the end's on its way down. So the audience, <laughs> I think, is very static. There's no, there's no such thing as a casual New Adventures reader at this point. That's very true. So, um, I, you know, it's very hard to get an exact set of numbers, but I, I wonder quite how many, how many people were sort of religiously reading the New Adventures at this point. I mean, presumably... A couple of thousand, maybe? It was certainly enough that a couple of the last books, not everyone who was reading them was able to find a copy. Um, whereas all the other books, I think everybody who wanted a copy got a copy. But as I said, the, the, the end of the Virgin license from the BBC didn't just mean they could stop writing books. It meant they could stop printing the books. So whereas there might be several weeks of printing other books and you could do multiple print runs and all the rest of it, what they printed at that moment 
is what they had. So books like Survival of Sin, Dying Day, Lungbarrow didn't get those runs. And I know people who didn't get copies. So it it was large enough that you couldn't do the whole readership in sort of a quick print run. I, I know that. I don't know what the numbers are, though. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's just... Um... I feel incredibly lucky that I've I've still got them all sitting on a shelf. Um, perhaps I should invest in some better security now that I've revealed that fact. <laughs> yes, no. Look, I've got my complete set. Some are in better uh, better condition than others because a, a lot of them, including Bad Therapy, would have been chucked in the school bag and dragged to and from school on the. Because I, I used to catch uh, the train about an hour each way to school back in those days. So this was just sort of thrown about in a school bag with lunch and history textbooks and some of them look like they have been which no, no. you know if i if i'd known that they were worth hundreds of dollars 20 years later i, <laughs> I might have been a little bit kinder to them but you know they were they were just what i was reading and we were very fortunate in australia there were specialist shops like minotaur in melbourne for example who had a standing order of imported uk copies so we didn't have to wait for australian co-publishers to release them we paid extraordinary amounts of money but we did get uk copies and those of us who wanted a copy got one uh which was fortunate but um that leads me to sort of if i can mention just where sort of my personal fandom was and a bit of a dust-up that was happening in in our local fandom around the na's at this time um because i'd been i was very invested in these books i, I read them and look they were new who for us and we discussed them as fans with the intensity that we discuss Doctor Who on the TV today. And, and this led to um, quite an interesting dust-up, because although I was a fan of the range, at this stage I was a little bit critical of some of the range, because I felt that it was getting a little bit too incestuous, uh, a little bit too self-reverent, and uh, there was certainly a feeling that I got, and maybe this was accentuated because we were in Australia and we were that much further away from UK fandom, but this this idea that half of the New Adventures writers would all sit around in the pub together and share their <laughs> stories and, and, and just sort of, you know, wank each other a little bit. And, yeah. you know, you'd get these sort of forwards or these acknowledgements at the start of books like, well, when I was having dinner with Paul Cornell before I got a drink with Kate Orman, we shared a story about, and this is how this came about, and lots of the books started to feel as though they were being written for each other, not for an audience, which... I thought was a bit of a shame and mm. when I did the local fanzines review of Kate Orman's Return of the Living Dad a couple of books before Bad Therapy I made my thoughts on this topic known in what I thought were very erudite and witty and uh, clever sort of ways oh, no. unfortunately <laughs> I was a 16 year old man <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't at all witty or erudite. It was just bitchy and rude and um, not nearly as clever as I thought it was. And, of course, that ignited a bit of a war with those people who thought I was wrong, particularly those people in Sydney fandom who were personal friends of Kate Orman. Um, and uh, that, le that led to uh, what we would call online now a flame war. Flame <laughs> war is probably a little bit too intense for something that happened over letter pages every couple of weeks. Um it's yes, awfully, awfully well-mannered kind of flame war. <laughs> yes, a very, very slow, snail-paced flame war. But, <laughs> but yes, and that, that did sort of remind me that 
in the same way that we now look back at the McCoy years and look, there are good things about McCoy years and bad things about the McCoy years, but we sort of let it all just wash over us in this nice sense of nostalgia. I think a lot of us who grew up as teenagers, particularly with the new adventures, do remember this wonderful time with all of these great books and it was a real vibe and it was a thing we had. And we kind of forget that there were the same controversies in the fandom at the time. There was the whole Rad V Trad stuff, which I want to talk about later. There was the, like, are the books just sort of disappearing up their own fundamental, uh, you know, as the conversation happening. And, and, and look, I think, I, I think they were. I think they were. Um, but we kind of wash over that now because, you know, it's 30 years ago and we just want to remember our childhood as a good time. Yeah. I, I quite agree. I'm thinking... While you're while you're talking about maybe the last kind of eighteen months of the books, and I think by by that point there was a there was a kind of feeling that they were more cohesively not even cohesive because the characterization was all over the place. But you're right in that there was a, a real kind of clique writing the books and bouncing ideas off each other or or going for one upmanship. So I can totally see where you were coming from at that point um yeah yeah and yeah yeah and and also and also they were becoming personalities so you know paul cornell was a fandom personality and kate orman was a fandom personality these were people that you could go to if you're in the right city the local fan event and you could meet these people um so so there was a little bit of that sort of you know big name fan celebrity thing going on which some people embrace, and, and I know sort of down here in the colonies, we really push back on that sort of thing, which <laughs> I, is important, and I bring it all up in the context of bad therapy, because then at this point in the range, along comes Matthew Jones, who is a brand new author, and is someone who, look, I think some of us vaguely knew the name for writing a minor column in DWM, but he wasn't someone I'd really heard of in fandom, and he hadn't written one of the books before. So into this slightly more incestuous, cliquey end of the range, you suddenly get a brand new author, which is a really cool thing. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why, for me, Bad Therapy does stand out towards the end of this range. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't really maybe even thought about it, but um, yeah, he'd have been the last debut author that the range created, right? I would have thought so, Um given that afterwards we've got... It's um, Jim Mortimer, Kate Allman, Kate Allman. Lance, <laughs> Lance, Lance Parkin. The Ghost of Ben Aronovich. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Mark Platt. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so he was. And thinking about... So, uh, so this was, as we said, December. I think in June or July there was um, Christmas on a Rational Planet. So that would have been the debut of... Lance Miles, you had Simon Butcher Jones's first book, so it wasn't a sort of by this point it wasn't unheard of to still get the odd debut, but it getting it this close to the end of the range was, I think, very special. Yeah, I, I think it was, and, and absolutely. I mean, even even some guy called Russell T Davies wrote the book uh, a couple before this. So um, who I've got no idea what you're talking about now. He Russell, he went on uh, he went on and wrote Queer as Folk. Uh, I liked some of his stuff on Why Don't You, which was on TV when I was a child. Oh, there you you go. Did you have Why Don't You in Australia? If we did, I didn't see it. 
Oh my god! So basically, the the format of this show, and this is obviously a little bit of a sideways leap out <laughs> of talking about bad therapy, but it was like a magazine show for kids that would be broadcast in school holidays. And the full title was, why don't you switch off your television set and go out and do something less boring instead? So it's teaching kids games and crafts and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an institution. Russell T. Davis takes over and it stops being just a bunch of, like, smiling children talking to other children. And he puts plots in it and he puts a mad 12-year-old inventor in the basement who's brewing a new life form in a big vat and it was just the most wonderful thing and then he did obviously dark season maybe three or four years after that so by the time he came along yeah he didn't have quite the same um you know sense of mystery about him as some of the other debut authors he felt very much more of a known quantity even though he he ultimately turned out to not be in any way and that was quite a standout book oh there you go there you go i didn't know any of that as i say my my first interaction with davies was queer as folk a few years later um but back to matthew jones because something i find kind of curious and it's one of these weird things about doctor who fandom is how some people can become celebrity names and and sort of you know fan praised authors and other Mm. people are kind of just sort of disappear into the ether um and it's amazing that matthew jones i think is very firmly in the latter category uh you know he's not a paul cornell he's not a gareth roberts he's not a k norman people that we all talk about and we all know and we all you know have, have discussed their work again and again and again um partly because a couple of them went on to write for the new series but but matthew jones is possibly one of the biggest successes of the range in terms of this being their first book and sort of going on to other things. Um, I mentioned RTD doing Queer as Folk in 1999. Matthew Jones was, I believe, the script editor on that show, which was a very successful show. Um, He did go on to be the producer for A Season of Skins, although uh, I had a look at it. It is one of the later shitter seasons. So, um, you know. (laughs) But again, you know, it was a real series that, that, you know, people know and and have heard of. Um, He was the... EP and producer at different times for Shameless. And in this case, it was at the time it was winning awards. So he's actually had some quite good success in television. Plus, he wrote, for me, the best couple of episodes probably of David Tennant's run in Doctor Who. So he's actually very successful in his field. And yet, I don't know anything about him. And I've never read an interview with him i've never seen him pop up on a forum or anything but he's quite a success story and clearly a very capable writer this is a bit of a mystery we're we're sort of piecing together here this kind of unknown question mark at the center of some of the most important tv of the last 20 years and and these books and is is there a is he real or is he is he three other na authors in in like a big overcoat with a trilby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's, he's, he's the Doctor Who version of Homer. No one's <laughs> quite sure, you know, is it one person, is it three? Um, yes, that's right. Well, it's Doctor Who's own Shakespeare, I suppose. Um, but that might be over-egging the pudding, and we'll, we'll get around to what you make of the book uh, in, a, in a second, I suppose. But yeah, you're right, Matthew Jones is not a name people seem to seem to linger on you know and i 
for as much as these books are, you know, 30 years old, they do kind of occasionally live on in, in the memory and you'll remember perhaps some some story arcs or some covers or, you know, some of the things some of the authors did. But I suppose because he only got one crack of the whip with one book, he didn't leave us enough of a, a legacy to to kind of join that club, I suppose. No, and, and nor was he perhaps as controversial or you know, engaging or, or inspiring a fan debate as others. I mean, Neil Penswick only wrote one book, but I think it's a name we all know because he just sort of <laughs> appeared out of nowhere, gave us the pit and then disappeared back to nowhere. But he gave us the pit and we're always talking about that, you know, is this the worst new adventure? So we know Neil Penswick's name. Whereas Jones, I think he's sort of caught up in that whole, the telemovies come, the telemovies gone, the Rangers wrapping up. Look, we've got Lungbarrow, which is going to give us the... the the final apotheosis of the Cartmel master plan. We've got Dying Days, which is going to be a Paul McGann new adventure. Wow. And oh my yeah. God, there's this book that kills a companion. And the hard drive crashed. Now Kate Norman's co-writing it. Wow. And in the meantime, <laughs> you've got you've got a really just a normal story in many ways. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on, but it's just a normal story by a debut author. And it, it just sort of gets lost. You're right, actually. It's, it is... And again, I suppose by dint of where it comes out in the range, it's just overshadowed on all sides by what's just happened in the story, what's about to happen in the next few books. And I suppose at that time, maybe people were just less receptive to a a straightforward, small-scale story. They just, they wanted the ending now. They wanted the big kind of final movements in the, the New Adventures Symphony. Yeah, it almost feels like that penultimate story in a TV season where you can kind of see see that they've saved the budget for the big finale. <laughs> so it's it's fear her. It, it is in that sense fear her, but it is far <laughs> better than fear her. I hope. Well, maybe let's 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 get into it then. What what do you? Let's get into it with a very broad question, but but you know, sort of in terms of the the, the plot and the story, how does how does bad therapy work for you? I think that this is the perfect blending of the rad and the trad of the new adventures, and that actually makes it a really good book at the end of this range. It is not a complicated story, and in fact, the resolution to the plot when I was rereading it. Uh, the other week for the podcast I was actually a little bit surprised at just how straightforward and simple the resolution turned out to be so it's not a big complicated space operatic type story but it is a very effective one and it's effective because it all comes together nicely the plot has various different strands but the characters are so wonderfully well written the themes are so well threaded through all of the different plots and because it is meant to be the book that deals with the grief of the remaining TARDIS crew after Roz dies in the book before and so that again is just woven through the entire story so is it a simpler story than a lot of books absolutely but I think there's a place for that and and given that that lets us really get involved with the characters and the ideas uh, that works really well because as a piece of emotional literature, I think it's one of the best they did. And as a plot, it's perfectly good, if not you know, really good as well. And that comes together as a really 
powerful experience for me. And look, I, I can talk a bit more about why that really affected me in a moment, but, but what are your big, broad thoughts on it, Ian? Because, I mean, you've come to this fairly <clears throat> newish or with little memory, I think. I Yeah, so, I mean, it's... Uh... I read all the new adventures at the time. I read yeah. them all again in the early 2000s, but I've kind of uh, put them away after that. And I've, I've, been, I've been busy. I've been traveling. I've been you know, working very hard. So reading this one again, I had a few memories of it being a strong novel. I had a few memories of some, some areas that I felt were kind of not as good as all that. Um, but... I very swiftly um, came to the conclusion that certainly for the first, I, I want to say, 200 pages, it's it's one of the strongest books in the range, certainly one of the strongest debuts. It is, as you say, masterfully plotted, um, quite intricately worked out. I suspect maybe around about page 200, the book got commissioned and he suddenly realised he had maybe two weeks left to turn it in. So the ending does kind of, uh, you know, it's it's not as strong for me as as the beginning. But I, but you know, first two hundred pages of that against the first two hundred pages of anything, I think this one's a winner. So it's really interesting you say that because I also noticed a change in style or a change in the writing at about that same point which which yeah. i think is, is is sort of natural for a lot of books if you're writing a 300 page book you sort of have probably three acts in your mind and 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 the third act here is different now on the one hand i do agree i think that the the, 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 the threading together of the plot things works in a technical level really well um there's no problem there it's not as though he suddenly has to cheat to get out of anything um which some new adventures absolutely do yep <laughs> But, but you're right, uh, it's not quite as big or dramatic um, or as powerful in terms of plot as it could have been. On the other hand, though, that last third for the book, third of the book w w was for me where it really, really hit home. And I think it actually became a much more powerful book for me. Um, and, and maybe I'll dive into sort of why, if you want. Mm, yeah. So, look, one of the reasons why I think this book is quite a big deal for me is that uh look something i don't talk about on a lot of my podcasts not that i hire but it's just not something that comes up is i'm a gay man and so at december 1996 i was a intensely closeted gay 16 year old uh i certainly wouldn't have identified as gay at that point but there was something back in my mind where when i saw a gay character on television something deep inside of me kind of resonated with that and related to that at a really deep subconscious level that I would never talk about at parties. Um, and, and that, I think, was very much the same with Bad Therapy as well. It was a, sort of the right book for me at the right time. Now, The New Adventures, just to give it a sort of a very potted history, um, absolutely sort of embraced what we would now call the LGBT inclusiveness or agenda or whatever you want to call it, in a way that the show never did, and that's because they were being made in the 90s, not the 60s, 70s and 80s. But... In a really odd sort of way, looking back, there were lots of sort of hints that people could be gay. There was lots of that very sort of Captain Jack, oh, in the future, everybody's a lot more chill, man. And, you know, we're not all hung up about sexuality and all the rest of it. And people make different choices, which I think was meant to be very uh, sort of 
progressive and, and positive, mm. but but I sort of sit there and go, so you're saying that it's a choice? So you're saying that people make different choices in the future? Like that that isn't helping mm. me with my struggle here, you know, guys, like, because it's not. Um, and it did feel like a bit of a cheat. Um, I believe the first proper gay character in the New Adventures was in Gareth Roberts' Tragedy Day, but to confirm that, I'd have to be able to get past page 50 of Tragedy Day, and that's a feat, <laughs> that's a feat I haven't managed in the last 30 years. So so I can remember in the review, they, they talk about the character, I want to say Forgwin, but I might be pronouncing it wrong. Um, yeah, as, as definitely the first, um, just happens to be, incidentally, a gay character. It was Tragedy Day. Um, I will at some point have to reread that and get past page 50. But mm. Look, when your podcast gets up to it, I will try again and I'll, I'll let you know if I succeed. Um, but look, that, that didn't make a big impact on me at the time. I was a little bit younger and obviously I didn't read, finish the book. Um, and then you get some, you know, Russell T Davies, who is someone who absolutely needs to be commended for his presentation of gay characters in television and in, in literature. He does it in a very unapologetic way, which is very strong. But but even then, even though he called the gay character David, um, I didn't relate. And, and, and I think the reason is I found a quote from an interview Russell T. Davies did on this topic some years ago where he says... I even wrote a Doctor Who novel in which a six-foot blonde blue-eyed companion interrupts the hunt for an interdimensional Gallifreyan war machine to get a blowjob in the back of a taxi, like you do. And it's like, no, no, that's not something I do, Russell. Um, And at 16, I definitely didn't do that. Um, And I certainly wasn't a six-foot blonde blue-eyed companion at the time, and I'm not now, I'm sorry to say. So again, that that, that very sort of unapologetic, in-your-face, confident gay thing wasn't something that like worked for me and if anything it made me a little bit scared whereas you get to bad therapy and this is a book in which you have a number of gay characters but in which the the substitute companion if you want to you know that 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 character that becomes the de facto companion for the length of a story is Mm. is is jack who is a 16 17 year old vulnerable uncertain gay boy and suddenly for me at the age of 16 as a very uncertain uh unaccepting gay boy was an incredibly powerful thing to have and something that just resonated with me you know in a really powerful way and the opening of the book with eddie um jack's boyfriend who who is killed in the first chapter um and again, you know, he's, he's got the blonde hair and people are sort of whispering about, oh, you know, you know, he's gay, but he's a hairdresser, so it's okay. And all of those sort of things going on are, are really, really powerful and, and actually feel, I think, I think Matthew Jones writes homosexuality, dare I say, in a more relatable way than Russell T Davies does. And I think that's really effective. And to then have the Doctor going on and interacting with these characters in a really positive way. Now, there's there's no sort of, you know, modern New Who type lecture of the Doctor sitting there and going, well, everybody needs to know that gays are just... There's nothing like that, and, and I'm glad <laughs> there isn't. But there yeah. is just those moments of, you know, the Doctor will watch a policeman make a homophobic comment and just in his mind sort of think, wow, that's really dumb. You know, just, just sort of very make it very clear that he's very supportive of Jack. He thinks that people being homophobic is stupid. Uh, and and, and it, it just works at a really good 
level. Um, it even has the first time the Doctor kisses another man. So, you know, forget about Captain Jack. We can erase John Barrowman from the history books. Hey. Uh, and um, and But it, and it's done in such a way that was so, so reminiscent of the Doctor kissing Rose in Parting of the Ways, where he, he's not kissing her. He's just pressing his mouth to hers to do some sci-fi thing. Yeah, and it's yeah. kind of the same in this book, where the Doctor has to kiss Jack inside the gelatinous taxi to clear the gelatinous taxi effects from his lungs. And, um, you know, okay, that's that's a nice little cheat, but it is, is a moment that I don't think has been highlighted. And it's followed a little bit afterwards by Jack sort of like, sort of saying to the Doctor, like, does this mean you're into, like, what? And the Doctor's like, oh, don't be silly. I'm a thousand-year-old time lord. I could never be interested in a human. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> um, I've got more to say sort of on, on that last hundred pages, but I've, I've waffled for a bit, and I'm curious to know how you took all of this part of the book as somebody well, who, 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 who wasn't, I believe, a closeted gay 16-year-old in 1996. No, I... I, I, I... I never got anywhere near the exciting closet of excitement. I'm just quite boring. Um, I found it wonderful that the Doctor, throughout the book, is so... He's like a dog with a bone. He's really tenacious. Whenever anyone acts in a homophobic way, he interrogates it, and he doesn't let it slide, he doesn't let it go. You think about him with uh, Chief Inspector Harris... Yeah, and throughout the book, the guy makes you know the odd comment, or he's reluctant to go, you know, to do something or go somewhere or whatever because he doesn't want to hang around with them. Yeah, um, he doesn't want to go to a gay club or that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and the and the doctor's always, why? What are you talking about, man? What what <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to you? <laughs> um, and it's, it, I feel like at that point in the books there had been more kind of ham-fisted attempts to to kind of introduce what was a very nascent, I think, social agenda at that point. Because mm. in 96, I think it was, um, Midsummer Murders started. Now, I'm not holding up Midsummer Murders as any kind of good bit of television that we should be that we should be documenting. But it was something in the UK that was getting 20 million viewers. Um, and as recently as 96, the very first episode of Midsummer Murders, the the detectives, uh, number two, make some kind of, you know, off-the-cuff homophobic remark, which, and I, I had to watch it in about 2010 because I, you know, reasons I happened to watch it. And I was absolutely shocked that as recently as 96, the culture in the UK, at least, was still so firmly... Um, if not actively homophobic, then certainly not in any way progressively tolerant, uh, which leads me on to an anecdote I'll, I'll come to in, in a, a little while about this book. Could, could, um, could I just inter interrupt and give my own yeah, example yeah. from that point? Because one of my favourite TV shows as a, a, a nerdy and politically interested teenager was House of Cards. And the second season of that, To Play the King, I think is phenomenally good television. And we got that in Australia in 94 and 95, now, that was one of the first times I can remember a, a serious program, as in something that wasn't Are You Being Served, had a gay character, um, which is in some ways positive, but if you look at the gay characters in that show, um, one of them is a 
Tory MP who gets arrested for going around with underage boys. So that's not a good role model. No, um, no. Now, the other is the Chief of Staff at Buckingham Palace, played by Nicholas Farrell, who in some ways it is good representation. He's in a, a very important job and he's doing his job and the king accepts him. And once he divorces his wife and accepts his homosexuality, he finds remarkable happiness with a new partner and, and all the rest of it. But at the end of the, the, the story, he's about to be outed by the press and has to resign because it's incompatible to be a public figure and gay. So although we're starting to get some representation, it's not a positive experience for gay characters in the 90s. That's very fair to say. Yeah, I mean, so so um, House of Cards and To Play the King, written by Michael Dobbs, who was, I think, the chairman of the Conservative Party, at the certainly at the time he wrote the book. So he's perhaps not the man to give us the kind of most, most even-handed... Uh, representation um, no no but but that that's sort of all the representation we had yeah I'm trying to think of you know there were no other uh, you know in in comedy shows I don't think you ever got anyone you know you never got gay characters so it was it just wasn't a thing the, was, the, the US sitcoms did it a bit like there was um, an episode of Cheers where like oh my god one of our regulars turns out to be gay well, how will we cope with this and and the Golden Girls would occasionally throw stuff like that in um, and I think as we get in later into the 90s you get shows like The Nanny which was obviously co-produced by Fran Drescher's closeted gay husband um, you know would start to throw that sort of stuff in and and, and, and then I think Dawson's Creek was probably the one um, about 2000 which had a, a proper positive gay character like there were other examples and people throw them out there uh, but but i guess what we're all saying is that at the time this book was published what this book was doing was very very unusual particularly for britain absolutely um yeah let's let's say that maybe for a lot of people in fandom maybe willow from buffy was the first really good kind of consistent gay character and that was a good what four or five years away from really kicking in yeah, um, and yeah. at the time this book came out, it was very much um, revelatory because it was because it wasn't Russell T Davis trying to shock you with Chris getting a blowjob in the back of a taxi, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't in your face. It was it was a tender book about emotions and someone who's just lost their love, and uh, uh, hand in hand with that, you've got the doctor portrayed as someone who's just sort of not aggressively progressively tolerant but but you know it, it really irritates and annoys him that people can be so appalling on the the smallest of you know difference points yeah it, it's 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 a it's a validation that feels really real um and, and relatable and i think that makes it far more powerful and that's why for me the last hundred pages is where the book, I think, goes from being a really good novel to just a really powerful and personally affecting novel. Because although there's the one sort of the main plot of how are they going to deal with Mariah and how is he going to be stopped and all the rest of them, that's, that's fine. I'm, you know, we're, we're talking about that. But all of these emotional arcs that you mentioned, Ian, are brought to a climax. And Jack's emotional arc at that point really, really just hit home for me. So I, I read this book a couple of weeks ago, and I finished it. I read the last hundred pages on the plane from Helsinki to Istanbul, as it happens. And Lovely. It, it, it was it was very very nice. And um, and there's a part of that book which is where they've rescued the last toys, and the doctor's having the moral debate about should we give these toys a partner and allow them to become 
personalities or is that a morally dubious thing to do? And, and we can talk about the Doctor's morality later if you like. But Jack realises at this point that if he goes and bonds with a new toy, he can bring his boyfriend back. He can recreate Eddie. And consciously he says no, that is an ethically and morally wrong thing to do. It wouldn't be real. It would be me using another being for my satisfaction. That's the wrong thing to do. But emotionally, under the surface, he spends the next couple of chapters going, it would be so easy to do this, and I'll probably be very happy if I did this. And he's sort of humming and ahhing, and he's sort of having that emotional fight with himself until there's a moment when he sees the last toy bond, and he goes, and he realises now that that chance has gone. He, he can't get his boyfriend back now in any way. And it's so underwritten. He just, he just sits there and he says, uh, the book, something like, and Jack realised that now he, he could not bring Eddie back. He turned, left the room, and just said, goodbye, Eddie. And I was, you know, as somebody who's not a normally emotional person, <laughs> I was on a plane packed in the middle of a flight to Istanbul with tears rolling down my, my eyes. Oh, no. And just absolutely blown away by how real and human that moment felt to me. Um, and, you know, because it was coming from a character that I I related to in a way I very rarely relate to characters in fiction um, because this character, you know, was me at the age of 16. And, and then sort of when the book goes on and you get that last stuff about, you know, what happened to Jack and that last line about him meeting somebody else at the very end. Again, I got really, really emotional. I'm getting emotional now. You know, I got really emotional about that book. So whilst I think, you know, I, I acknowledge the last 100 pages plot-wise isn't as strong as the first 200, as an emotional impact, like a Doctor Who new adventure that can make me cry in public has has really hit home somewhere. So I actually really rate that last 100 pages as some of the best Doctor Who I've read. I think, I mean, you're you're entirely right about that sort of arc for Jack and how he's portrayed throughout the book as being, you know, just a, a, a weak little guy. He can't he can't fight the, the, the criminals. He's, you know, he's just a he's just a little guy. But the strength of character and the strength of heart to make that choice and to resist the temptation to artificially bring back your, you know, your ideal because mm. you know it's ethically dubious. That is that that makes him one of the strongest characters in in the new adventures. I, I would have argued. For me, though, it's when it's when Chris gets angry with Patsy and just starts shouting sort of incoherently, and it just reminded me of. I think Harry Potter five, where he starts shouting all the time, and I, 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 that was the bit for me where it was like, oh dear, no, oh no. And do we need them fighting on a train, really, or is this just the most egregious bit of padding? But um, all the all the actual germane good plot stuff, yeah, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I look, I I, I didn't mind the tra- fight on the train, but but you're right, it did sort of feel like that. We need to have an action beat in here because we need to have an action beat in here, and yeah, yep, yeah. okay, that's. And yep, okay, that's fine. Um, but it's interesting you bring Chris up because one of the things that's interesting about the new adventures is that uh, moral and ethical relationship between the Doctor and his companions and, and the tension there. I think Love and War is probably the best example of where the Doctor's alien and big picture uh, take on ethics and morality is in conflict with our human and the companion's human uh, take on all of that and, and, and how that clashes. 
this book, as we start to get the Seventh Doctor's story deliberately being wound up and we're heading towards Lungbarrow, is in part about the Doctor having lost a companion, having had a companion killed, reflecting on you know whether he does need to be a bit more human and worry a bit more about the individuals in his big moral crusade against you know evil as time's champion and all of that stuff. And so when the human companions here, Chris and uh, Perry, which we need to talk about, um, <laughs> and, and indeed Jack and, and others do say to him, Doctor, you know, you've, you've actually made uh, a morally dubious decision here. He does reflect and go, actually, yes, at a, at a human individual level, I have made the wrong decision and changes his mind. And I think to see the McCoy Doctor do that was actually a really powerful point and and again felt like the the beginning of an end of his character arc as this huge dark doctor from the new adventures i i think it it kind of echoed back to the televised mccoy where he he was more approachable is a slightly silly way of putting it but yeah but he, he did seem slightly more attuned to the people around him whereas by the kind of median point of the new adventures, he was basically a kind of small G god. Um, so I thought it it just harked back to Sylvester McCoy's portrayal as someone who knew that he could get it wrong and he, he was fallible and he would second-guess himself. Yeah, I think but, that's exactly um, right. You, you see the character yeah. coming home. But so, and this is a sentence I never thought I'd hear myself saying, but let's... Let's talk about the elephant in the room, Perry. <laughs> so the first thing I'll just ask before I give my take on it is, did you know either the first or the second time you read this that Perry was in the book? Um, I, I feel as though I did. And I feel that even if by some miracle I hadn't known going into the book that she was in it, uh the first time Gilliam is mentioned, I would have, I would have put two and two together. So by about page thirty, it wouldn't have been a surprise. Yeah, I didn't know going into the, the first time, and, and Virgin were really, really good at not publicising this at all. And it, it comes back to the whole: we're not getting any new audience at book fifty-seven, so we don't need to have that. Hey, kids, Perry's coming back for this one. You can kind of let it be a surprise. And reviewers were also really good at keeping the surprise like you mm. the moment you talked about Gilliam tra- trapped on Cronteb it was kind of yeah. like oh oh okay yeah. well I know who this yeah. is going to be yeah. um, but it still it still works really well now uh, we've talked a lot about the uh, the gay agenda in the book and I, I do need to sort of come back one more time in the case of Perry and say I think only a gay writer could have brought Perry back this effectively because certainly my looking back at Perry at this stage in fandom was look look she was the the final fully formed version of the companion exists to show flesh to get the dads watching which is something that goes right back to the very start of doctor who but but seemed to evolve more and more over time until jnt just said just hire nicola bryant and put her in as little as possible on screen so that people will watch and ogle at her and yep. i can certainly like i can remember going to to fan meetings where Planet of Fire was shown, and it was a perfectly acceptable thing when you got to the bikini shot for someone to sit there and rewind and watch that four or five times, whilst you know fifty fans sat there and drooled. Like that was a perfectly acceptable <laughs> thing to do. Um, 
And and oh, look, you know, okay. the fact that I was sitting there slightly bemused as a teenager probably was a very good sign of where my life was going. But um, we we won't we won't go too far <laughs> down that path. But but as a character, you know, Perry is introduced in Planet of Fire as a really strong female woman, and and incidentally written by a gay writer. Um, you know, she's introduced in a story written by a gay gay gay, gay script writer. Um, after that, she's in you know Caves of Androzani where Sheriff Jack wants to molest her. You then yep. go to Vengeance on Varos, where they want to destroy her bodily autonomy and turn her into a bird. Shockai wants to eat her. Uh, the Borad wants to fuck her. Um, you know, like, it's just person after person wants to, in some way, molest, rape, or humiliate... Sub- subjugate or... Yeah. Subjugate Perry. Um, yeah. And the final sort of version of uh, on this that the book really brings home is the Doctor just abandoning her on Thoros Beta without even a care in the world. And so I think what I'm saying is that with Perry such... And look, we, I think we've revised now as a fandom our views of, of, of Perry and and we look at just how badly the Doctor treated her and how bad a character, you know, this how problematic a character this was. And I think we all sort of look back and go, poor Nicola Bryant having to put up with that, you know, mm. up to and including JNT spitting in her face at one point. You know, she didn't have a fun time on this show. Um... So to get a writer who kind of goes beyond the Perry is a sex object thing, which Matthew Jones can and does do, and giving us a real person again, and and giving us a really human response to what happened to her, again, lots of fans would be like, oh, Perry got stuck on Thoris Beta with King Yukanos. Ha, ha, ha. She stuck with Brian Blessed. Wouldn't that be a jolly jape? Ha, ha, ha. And Matthew Jones goes, no, this is a 20-year-old botany college student who's suddenly left on a crazy world hundreds of years in the future, thousands of light years away by the person she trusted to show her the universe. And it talks about how she spent three months saying to Yukanos, no, I can't leave. The doctor's coming back for me. I know he'll come back for me. And then Yukanos has to say, sorry, it's been three months. He's not coming back for you. And Perry having to make the, the, the decision going, well, if I want food and shelter and, and to survive in the galaxy, there's this one guy who's the local king who's happy to provide that. I guess I'm going to have to marry him. That's that's the only choice I can make for my survival and has to live with that. And just what that life was like and then her wanting to and, and managing to escape and then confronting the doctor... And the thing that I love most is when she says to the, the, the doctor, why did you abandon me? And he's like, he starts the, like, like the doctor starts the excuse of, well, you know, I was busy and there was a trial and literally tails off as he realizes I've got nothing. Yeah. Um, and it was an extraordinary moment to read um, as much this time around as, you know, in, in December 96, when it came out, he, he just didn't go back. And fandom watching the TV show in the 80s just went along with it. Because, you know, the, the there were two ways of reading it. Perry had been killed or, or Perry had been left behind and putting her in a, a pink heart kind of was like, oh, that's the end of her story. How lovely, how touching. She's found happiness. Um, it was so problematic. And 
and again, I, I, I wonder if she shouldn't have been more angry with the Doctor in this book, if she shouldn't have pushed him further and demanded more of an answer, because, you know, really... I, you know, it's one of those things where if if you approach Doctor Who as a, a soap opera text that's real and, and should be interrogated to that level, you know, it's, it's, it's like... Um, it's like with Missy dying. It's like, well, you you need to tell us how we got another master. If if Missy died, people are, people either just don't care about that sort of thing, or they absolutely insist on having things spelt out and justified. And you need to go into depth. And I guess this is the closest we're going to get to that. And I think it goes maybe six tenths of the way to where I personally want it to go. But you know, I, I'm on the spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I think I think you're right, and and you're right. Like for fans viewing in the 1980s, it's like, well, Melanie is now the new companion, so you can switch off Perry, and we're now talking about Mel, and that's what the show did. Um, and and you're right, it was it was terrible, and 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 I, so I like that Matthew Jones in Bad Therapy does take the time to acknowledge that and and go some way towards repairing it. I think you're right; it's not as strong as it could be. I suspect that's because. The book is not about this story. This is a, another plot strand. That this is another plot strand that is brought into the story, uh, and I think it does work in terms of sort of mirroring the way the Doctor leaves companions. Sometimes they're killed. In this case, he abandons them, and and that we don't do that emotional follow up, which is what the book is all really all about. It's all about how you mm. deal with grief, how you deal with loss. Um, you know that that is all the way through the book. All the characters are dealing with that in a different way, so it works. But because the book's not about that, I agree it doesn't quite stop as long as it perhaps could have to explore that. But I do think it is a really lovely final end to Perry's story. And and look, I don't think that I am drawing too long a bow or making too laboured a point to say that I think Perry's introduction in Planet of Fire and her exit from the show here are her two strongest moments, her two most relatable moments, and they are both written by gay men. Yeah, and, you know, she's travelling around Europe, uh, possibly without a passport, so she very much comes full circle. Very much. Um, but what I'm what I'm thinking now is, 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 doesn't this book actually say that the Doctor's a massive hypocrite? He spent all this time moping about because he's lost Roz, but his past is littered with other companions like Perry, who he's just, who he's lost and hasn't given a second moment's thought to. So what, what point is, is Matt Jones making there? I think the book is saying that the doctor is flawed. And I think the book is also trying to say that when the doctor puts aside the big picture and remembers to care about the individual, he is a good person. And I think that it's actually a very, mature thing to say that a character can be both good and flawed at the same time is the book perfect in doing that no it's not uh, matthew jones for all of his brilliant writing in his debut novel is a debut author uh, and you know some of that stuff doesn't come across quite as perfectly as perhaps a more experienced writer would do or probably perhaps as, as, as matthew jones would do if he was to edit this book now i think he'd probably do some of that stuff very differently but I, but, I, but I think flawed but good is what it's trying to say. Yeah, no, I, I suppose so. And certainly it's it's saying, you know, the Doctor is also a moral 
question mark worthy of study like any of these people any of the humans he encounters he's just as much of a a palimpsest to you know pray over and and explore and interrogate but um because he's fundamentally uh when when he's not when he's not when he's not scheming or he's not trying to do anything big or dramatic or clever when he's just following a very straightforward police procedural he can't help but be such a a, a lovely character at every step of the way and such an inspiring character and such a kind of diamond hard force for good um i'm remembering that scene where he's hiding under jack's bed um and and jack's being jack's having to try and get rid of the guy that's blackmailing him and the doctor just he, he won't entertain that for a second and he just stands up and gets rid of the guy in about 30 seconds it's just it's wonderful um but it's when he lets his manipulative uh scheming kind of side take over that he he loses i guess all all the point all the bearings of his moral compass and just becomes lost in in his kind of self uh self-ordained quest i'm talking very deeply for me about what is a 30 year old children's book and i'm sorry about that david <laughs> <laughs> no i think i think you're absolutely right and i, and I think it's also informed by the fact that the Eighth Doctor is coming down the pathway very, very fast. And in fact, on television, had arrived at this point. And so there is that thing of, you know, this is this is the Seventh Doctor who wiped out the Daleks and wiped out the Cybermen and um, killed Ace's boyfriend in the name of the greater good and all, all of these things that he's done. Now he's, he's saying, well, actually, maybe I need to get back to the small scale and remember I am a good person just in time to become Paul McGann. Hmm. Well, yes, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is, but even the way that he tries to deal with Mariah in the, excuse me, even the way that he tries to deal with Mariah in this book, he he labours the point that he doesn't want to kill unless he has to, and in the mm. end, you know, he he doesn't even manipulate others into killing Mariah. Others are very keen to do it, whether the doctor's there or not, and so that that again is a nice exploration. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that we're now the better part of an hour into our conversation and we've, we've touched on Mariah, we've touched on the Scrantons and, the, and, and the, the blackmailers and the gangs that were going on. But all of these little plot points really are secondary, I think, in this book to the emotional story. Absolutely. Um, to the point of not irrelevance, but I'm not seriously going to waste either of our time by going into an analysis of Gordy Scratton. Um, <laughs> No, you know, this is this is Matt Jones saying this is the doctor's position on um, these kind of issues that we as a society need to get to bloody sharpish uh, go, and 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 for that the book was um, just such a, a breath of fresh air. It's an amazingly light touch that he has all the way through the book. The fact that he can reference the Notting Hill riots. And absolutely, as you say, make a point about, you know what, we haven't moved that far on from the Notting Hill riots in 1996 without at any point feeling heavy handed, I think is a really, really good thing. Mm. And, and for me, the best way to do that stuff. Absolutely. I, I, I agree completely. The only thing that I'll just say briefly is to expand on something I mentioned in passing earlier when I said that bad therapy for me is the perfect 
blend of the rad and the trad in terms of new adventures and oh yes it's something i mentioned as as well uh in in uh, in your very opening episode of this podcast when i was talking back about the the new adventures ian and and i say that because on the one hand it is a very traditional doctor who plot the doctor arrives in 1958 london weird things are happening he teams up with a policeman he gets involved in the various different plots there's an alien thing going on he resolves the mm. plot it's very traditional mm. in that sense yep. but it's yep. also very radical in that we have a very progressive agenda being delivered we have a very emotional uh very character driven sort of thing which i think is a much more of that radical sort of approach to the show and so i think this is the 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 range itself really moving beyond. We have radical books, we have traditional books, and saying this is actually now where Doctor Who is in 1996. And so I think that it actually starts to really tie up uh, the themes of the new adventures and does set us on that path where we're now going to have the, the, the last three or four books just wrapping up the Seventh Doctor's story and the new adventure story. So this time around, it's a series of firsts. The first novel I've read with Chris Quedge. The first with a returning former companion after they spent many, many years apart from the Doctor. And according to the title page, the first novel by Matthew Jones, which, based on the high quality of this book, is mightily impressive. There's just so much that he gets right here. The seventh Doctor acts and sounds just like he should, mysterious and mercurial, one moment with a quiet intensity and the next seized by a loud, fierce anger. Supporting characters, both good and bad, come alive on the page, form of hopes and fears and understandable motivations. And in Jack, we have another of those characters you fall in love with and wish they'd gone into the TARDIS for further adventures. Okay, so on the surface we have a what-if-the-doctor-met-the-craze conceit, crossed with the story about the rights of lab-created sentient metamorphs. But really, there's a sense of melancholy at the heart of this book. It's a story about loss. Loss of loved ones, loss of friends, and loss of innocence. And I'll be honest, it's been kind of hard reading this book. Not because I haven't enjoyed it, I've loved it, but because of the feelings it's brought to the surface. During the time I was reading it, much of the UK was going through a strange communal mourning for a queen that 99% had never met yet felt like they knew. And whether you were moved by the death of the monarch or not, I think a lot of people myself included, found themselves thinking about the people in their lives that are no longer around. It's almost 10 years since my mum died after a long, long illness. And I'll be the first to admit that I didn't really get that upset at the time mum went. I I was practical and it's not like I hadn't come to terms with the fact that her death was inevitable given the effects of the leukaemia. But with the national mood and reeling about Chris Quedge clearly struggling with his grief over the death of someone that meant so much to him, It all resonated. I found myself thinking about my mum more than usual. How I felt all the time. How I bottled things up and, and like Chris, just tried to get on with life. Until suddenly, something like this reminds me that she's not here anymore. It's an emotional reaction I really wasn't expecting to have to a Doctor Who novel. Now, it's a long time since I read Bad Therapy. Um, and I'm just going from from memory of the things that that stood out so much that I remember them um, even now, um, all these years later. Um, 
it struck me as a really kind of grown up Doctor Who. Um, and that's something that was really important to me at the time because when I was reading these these new adventures, it was actually after they'd been published. Um, so I became sort of a... I'd always had a casual interest in Doctor Who from watching it with Sylvester McCoy uh, as a child. Um, and then obviously the show disappeared. And then in 1993, uh, when they did the repeat of Planet of the Daleks, I used to watch that every week um, at my grandma's house. Um and was kind of fascinated by this different Doctor, you know, the third Doctor, um, and kind of understood a little bit about the idea of of the Doctor being able to change. Although I don't think I was aware of, of the concept of regeneration so much. Um, and that's something that I became aware of, obviously, when the TV movie came out in 96, and it was at that point uh, that I really started to um, become interested in Doctor Who and sort of seek out videos, but also find the books... But obviously, as we know, when the uh, when the TV movie came out and the BBC took the license away from Virgin and started producing their own books, the the new adventures were not up for sale for much longer, really, and and started being withdrawn and becoming out of print. Um, that's why some of them are are super collectible now. But Bad Therapy is one of the ones that I picked up then. Um, so when it was in the shops. Sadly, I didn't buy a lung barrow for uh, four ninety nine back in the uh, back in the day. I wish I had done. Um, and yeah, I just remember being kind of blown away by the adult sensibilities of it. I'd read a couple of the earlier new adventures, so I'd read Conundrum. Um, so obviously, bad therapy comes at a, at a key point for the characters and what Chris is going through. Um, you know, in the aftermath of of the death of Roz. Um, didn't really make sense to me, although I I later found out that it didn't make sense to many people because Sylvia Sim was published out of sequence uh, because of um, hard drive failure, I believe. Uh, but I just remember really enjoying sort of Chris's character um, and some of the things that he goes through in the novel. I remember really relating to him um, and I really enjoyed... Um, the way the novel had so much kind of, you know, of a um, of a gay um, sort of presence and visibility, because that's something else that I was discovering um, in my late late sort of teenage years, um, and it was really nice to see that represented in Doctor Who in what felt like official Doctor Who to me at the time. Um, you know, it it felt like. A maturity and and that the you know the world was changing in in a positive way. Um, around about that time, I also remember really kind of um finding the Perry stuff, um interesting. Uh, I think I was aware by that point of how Perry had exited, um although I don't think I'd seen Trial of a Time Lord yet. So it was you know that was interesting to sort of see this slightly bitter version of Perry. Um, and I know that when the expanded media um, does these sort of companion um, revisits, you know, they they often become non-canonical in some people's eyes when they're contradicted in some way. So it's interesting that Perry was recently um, seen having had a happy marriage um, in that uh, Pete McTighe sketch that was for the season 22 
um, Blu-ray set. Um, and obviously, Bad Therapy uh, would have us believe that she'd not been happy um, and that she kind of resented the Doctor a little bit. And of course, the Doctor is is that kind of much darker, much more manipulative Seventh Doctor that really seemed to fit <clears throat> with how he then became in the TV movie. You know, it really felt at that point, before sort of Big Finish and before all these kind of different timelines um, for the characters, the new adventures felt really canonical. They felt like a real kind of continuation of Doctor Who. Um, and when you then watch the TV movie, it really feels like that Seventh Doctor is the Seventh Doctor from the New Adventures. You know, it feels like Matthew Jacobs had been reading the books all along and, and the TV movie sort of picks up from from where the New Adventures finish, even though the New Adventures are not finished completely by the time the TV movie came out. So it was just all, it's all a product of that really sort of interesting era um, and whatever your sort of views on, on canon, you know, for me... It's all canonical, Doctor. You know, if it's a Doctor Who book, a Doctor Who audio play, you know, we're dealing with a, a show that that sort of revels in time travel and paradoxes and things changing. And so, you know, why shouldn't the Seventh Doctor have different timelines? Why shouldn't Perry have different timelines? For me, it works really well. But I think that kind of you know the the sort of prevalence of of gay characters and um, you know what Chris was going through, but just the general sort of adult feel. Um, is what I remember Bad Therapy for. Um, and I do look forward to reading it again. I am working my way back through the new adventures, but I'm also reading the Eighth Doctor adventures at the same time um, and sort of dipping in and out of different ranges because I can, and that's Doctor Who, isn't it? Um, but yeah, Bad Therapy. Fond memories of it. Um, to, to me, it's, it, it's a standout title um, and it was a good book. <laughs>